The presenting sponsor for On Education is Schoology. Schoology's passion lies in helping instructors and students have the best education experience possible. Schoology is a collaborative, student-focused, and faculty-centered learning management system. Students love Schoology because it gives them 24-7 access to course materials, real-time feedback from their instructors, and easy-to-use collaborative tools. Teachers love the streamlined workflow, integrated apps such as Google and Microsoft tools, and the ability to view evidence of student learning for making instructional decisions. To learn more about what is possible with Schoology, simply visit Schoology.com. Can I just say, any test that has an acronym that large can't be good. (laughs) Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss what high-stakes tests are required by each state, how to go from building cities in games to building cities in real life. And our guest this week is educator and author of the amazing book, The New Childhood, Jordan Shapiro. We should give everyone a farm together update. Yes. How are the farms doing? My farm (laughs) is out of control. (laughs) I I sent you a message this morning because I've realized now that if I have to like clear everything and replant everything, it's it's easily two hours now. Two hours. <laughs> That's why I hired a bunch of uh, farm, farm hands. hands. Uh, but no, it's it, if if you've never played this game before, you started <laughs> off with this little plot of land. And I mean, and sometimes you actually ran out of things to do because you ran out of money or whatever it might be. You didn't have enough to be able to plant more things. And at this point, I just look at the expanse and go, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I, I realized, to yeah, go ahead, I realized um, a couple things this week about my farm together addiction. And that's a, you know, you know, you're in it when yeah. you're reading Reddit. Yes, exactly. When you're studying right. the so, techniques the intricacies right. of the game. <laughs> so I am definitely on Reddit like twice a day now reading the farm together Reddit page, which is how, you know, you're you you went over the deep end. Um, but also I, so reading Reddit, I realized that you're getting more money and experience than I am because I have that flat farm and you get a deduction. I, saw I guess that. Yeah. So that's why, cause I've been wondering the why- penalty. I've been wondering why your level is higher than mine and you have like way more money than I do is because I'm getting ding because I think we're playing about the same amount in terms of like hours played in and around 170, 180 now, I think. Yeah, uh, I'm at 220 now. Oh my God. <laughs> I just okay. left it on. You know what I mean? I right. leave it on overnight and whatever it might be just so I could keep accumulating money. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to leave it on so I can pray to God that people get in it and do some work for Please me. Please come over. <laughs> <laughs> I posted that on Reddit. I'm like, guys, just don't just don't harvest the animals. Everything else, just go crazy, please. Go crazy. At this Plant point. and harvest anything you want. Just go. <laughs> I need all the help I can get. So yes, there we go. And and I'm going uh, away. So I was gone all last week. Yes, you've been traveling a lot. And I'm gone all next week too. Yes. So I need help farming my farm. So listen, if you were on the <laughs> fence about this and you're listening farm together it's on steam it's go 20 please bucks. buy it and then farm my farm I'll, yes. leave, I'll leave my laptop on in the hotel room or whatever so i was in edmonton yes uh this week at erlc it's the the probably one of the bigger conferences ed tech conferences 
uh, in Alberta. Okay. And I was there with uh, friends, Brian Aspinall and AJ Giuliani. Uh, super good dudes. This was an awesome, like, I mean, if, if you couldn't, if you could pick no better people to hang out with at a conference, it's these guys. These we just guys had a, awesome. a blast. Yeah. It was so fun to just be around them and, and talk and, you know, have dinner together and, and all of that stuff. We, we had a great time. Um, so much, uh, so many interesting things came up. Uh, some things that just blew my mind too. I, I want to bring up one thing because I've been thinking about it all week and that's it. Yeah. I mean, my wheelhouse was project-based learning. That's basically what I did Yes. from, from grade five to grade eight, my, all of my assignments and lessons and everything was centered around project-based learning for these kids. And, and, I tell you, file under what I, I wish I knew then what I know now, because AJ talks about project based learning as well. Like that's kind of his thing as well. And one of the things that he said, and he said it a bunch of times and even had like a rubric is he talked about marking, assessing the process, not the final product. Love that. And and I just I wish I had done that. I, I'm telling you, I'm admitting that. All that I assessed when I assessed project-based learning was the final product. Sure. And I I'm sure wish that happens. In, in hindsight, I'm like, it, it, it was like a light bulb went off in my head when he said that. And I was like, damn, I was doing it all wrong the whole time. <laughs> I could have done so much more interesting assessment and meaningful assessment if I had been assessing the process instead of the final product and he has a rubric, you should go on AJ's website, look him up, AJ Giuliani. We'll put his website in the show notes, but he has a, a, a process, a project-based learning process rubric. Yeah. Um, specifically that, that, that assesses um, the way that kids work through projects um, and not assessing the final product almost at all. It was, I, I mean, I just I wish I had had that three or four or five years ago. And, Very interested and, in, in sharing that out too, Mike. I mean, I know a lot of people are. In, yep. And and there my in, head just exploded. I couldn't believe it. I yeah. was like, man, what was I doing my whole life when I wasn't doing this? And uh, I mean, it's 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 uh, you know, you I guess as a teacher, you just you keep learning and you keep Absolutely. you know growing and finding new things. But man, this is something I could have used pretty bad. <laughs> and uh so it was it was pretty wild so hopefully you know if you're doing a lot of project-based learning you need to take a look at this think about how you're assessing the projects and think about how you could assess the process and not the product yes um i think that that is my biggest takeaway from erlc um next week i'm i'm at wonder workshop all week so i'm super pumped to be in san francisco uh, I'll be working out of the the Wonder Workshop head office for uh, I guess Tuesday, Wednesday, and almost all of Thursday. Lots of meetings, lots of cool conversations are going to happen. So, so I'm going to be in California. If you live in San Francisco, folks, you know, hit me up. Yes, DM him. Um, I, I I sent a message to Alice, but she's a little far away. She's like three yeah. hours away. And where's she at? Fresno. Fresno. So yeah. that's I think three hours away. A little, little far for a dinner, but uh, but hopefully, if there's anyone else in the in the San Francisco general area, there. One other thing, little pet peeve. 
everywhere I go, there is no sporting events going on while I'm there. They're always either <laughs> happening the, the day Away. before or the day after. I Like all the home games are either a day before or a day after. I've been in Edmonton. I've been in Winnipeg. I'll be in San Francisco. I could go to Oakland for a, for a game of uh, San Jose Sharks. No one is at home. What the hell? It, it's so frustrating because <laughs> all I want to do is check off bucket list things uh, while I'm while I'm out. I mean, I'm, I I couldn't even go to a Winnipeg Jets game. They weren't at home. It was pretty frustrating. So <laughs> I, I need to arra- better arrange my schedule. Actually, I think the last I'm going to Vancouver in April and the last Canucks game of the season is the day after we leave Ooh, in April. Again, bad timing. <laughs> so frustrating so frustrating awesome. hey hey speaking of frustrating Ugh. testing <laughs> let's let's talk about tests because this is our second favorite punching bag especially for glenn other than teachers pay teachers is, is, <laughs> it's right is, on the same level <laughs> right is standardized tests yes and you you've come up with this really interesting article talking about what each state requires in terms of standardized testing it's interesting to go ahead and take a look at this, and we'll make sure we link it in the show notes. But it basically, the title is, What Tests Does Each State Require? I think it's important for us as educators, doesn't matter which state you're actually in, to take a look at kind of a nationwide uh, picture of what is happening and how many states are doing what they're doing and whether or not we should all be headed down in certain directions. So one of the biggest things and the first things that's actually mentioned on this in this article is this uh, use of the PARC test, P-A-R-C-C. And if you're not familiar with the PARC test because you're from the Midwest or some other states that don't use it, it's basically it's an acronym that says it's a partnership for assessment of readiness for college and careers. And it's basically a group of states that work together to develop and administer state exams. So uh, in Minnesota, we have something called the MCA, the Minnesota Comprehensive Assessment. Um, and anyway, this this park exam uh, was pretty popular at one point in time, and a bunch of the different states have actually pulled away from it and started developing their own, which I don't can even I, know. Can I know. just say, yeah, go ahead. can I just say any test that has an acronym that large can't be good? <laughs> I know it's so gigantic. It's, it's the acronym itself is scary. Yes, let alone the test. Exactly. So there's yeah. your first hint. Exactly. Big hint there. Um, and there's 15 states that actually administer the park exam uh, on this, and then 32 states that use uh, their own types of state uh, t- state tests that they've designed. So sort of like Minnesota, the MCA that we have here, and then three states that use a you know a mixture of of different assessments. Also in this uh, list. And if you're an educator, especially at the secondary level, you're familiar with this, that some states do require the students to take the SAT or the ACT. So I, I'm not sure of how many states actually require a specific score. And I'm not sure if that's actually the case, uh, Mike, but I know that certain states do require just you taking it, which is interesting, though, when you when you have all of your students, Minnesota used to be one of these states, and we would require all of our students to take the ACT, and then all of those scores then would be compared to other state scores then, Mike. And so you have like basically uh, every student, even students that aren't interested in, in specific academic, uh, you know, they're not, uh, not academic, university type level careers. They're not right. interested in that. They're forced to take this ACT, which measures 
those specific skills in math and reading, you know, whatever their scores is are still compared to other state scores, which again shows you why comparing state uh, high stakes testing is just ridiculous. But the most ridiculous thing of this article is states that require an exit exam, which include the places that I'm from. Uh, I grew, I was born in El Paso, Texas. So Texas is one of those states. And I grew up or I went to high school in New Mexico. And it's still one of those states where you're required to take an exit exam to get your diploma. So it would be interesting to know more about that as far as from these teachers of these states, what is on that exit exam and what is the percentage of students that they complete all of their other requirements, but yet they fail that test, Mike, and then they mm-hmm. don't get a diploma. I just, uh, just disgusting to me to think that's, that that is actually happening, but it is. And it, it says that there's 13 states that require that as far as in, uh, in 2017. So it's pretty recent information. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, exit exams i i was telling you off air that i had to take an exam a math exam uh to get my bachelor of education yes. and it was required to pass i don't think that's the same as this but i just it made me think of it because i have bad memories of you know <laughs> prepping for that and taking i mean i'll i'll, I'll admit this will this will be the not the first time i've told people this but i i failed it the first time oh they uh that math yeah. exam Yep. yep. So I failed. I failed it the first time. I, I did exactly what you tell students not to do. I rushed through it. I was super confident. I just went in and was like, I'm going to crush this stupid exam. And <laughs> and and I, I didn't I did. Now, failure was I think you had to get 70 percent or or higher. Sure. So I think I, I got in the 50s. Um, but I mean, that's I mean, it's brutal. <laughs> I, I aced you, it. The, you they it. give exactly. you a yeah. They you, obviously so you get a you got a second chance. But the scary thing is, and I mean for me, I had a I had a kid at the time, uh, and and I I wasn't you know a young twenty something year old student. I was in my early thirties, and I had to like graduate and then get a job so I could feed my family. Sure, uh, it, it was a different set, it, Yeah, so I was like, what if I failed this exam? I'm screwed in every possible way i i got 99 percent on it the second time so (laughs) so in my defense i mean and (laughs) i tell you i'm doing some some talks this summer where i'm going to talk about failure and it's going to come up because um it's you know it's it's the lesson that i want people to talk about is you know learning from from your stupid mistakes but it's fine yeah i mean this is high stakes tests are horrible tests are the worst Mm mm-hmm just the worst and there's the sooner we can start whittling down i know the sat you know peaked up a little bit but hopefully i I thought i had heard that a lot of people were dropping it but i guess that's not i guess that's not the case yeah no and i mean the the more that we use more comprehensive way of looking at our students uh, instead of a one-time summative assessment the better we are all going to be, including our students. They have a better opportunity to display the knowledge that they actually have attained throughout their schooling. Um, And we all know that that's the case. We just need to move, start moving towards that actually happening and quit being pressured by these big testing companies. Because I know that these uh, big book companies actually have a, a big hold on these tests too, Pearson and others. So that's, that's the other part that people don't, don't want to talk about is how they are so interconnected with this testing and the curriculum uh, that we are doing. And it's all at this kind of corporate level, uh, which I think the further that the more that we move away from that, the better that we're all going to be. 
I've mentioned it before, but there's a an episode of uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver where he does a whole segment on the SATs and how they're dominated by by basically a for-profit business yes. and, and stuff like that. I'll see if I can find that. I know we've mentioned it before because obviously we talk about standardized testing a decent amount, um, but I'll, I'll see if I can find that the video on YouTube and put it in, in the show notes for us. I was thinking about this next topic um, because we had Doug Levin on uh, a few months ago. Uh, and so it, it's such a contrast in outcomes where Doug Levin told us a story about a child who kind of um, he hacked, uh, subverted, right? subverted the, the rules of the school in terms of um, using an administrator login and was getting basically raked through the coals by not only the school board, but the police and the court system. And you have now this story of a student who um, improved uh, a, a classroom tech solution and the company actually hired the student to to work for them afterwards uh, because he he actually hacked the, the software and made it better. Made it better. Yeah. So there's it's kind of reminds me it's called Vivi, V-I-V-I. And it reminded me of like Apple Classroom. If you have those kind of devices in your class sure. where basically you could uh, see what students are on, you know, on their, yeah. on their screens, there's other systems like Casper and other ones that are out there. Smart like, has smart as a smart system one too. has one too. Yeah. And this one is in Australia and this kid figured out a way to basically improve the screen mirroring and video screening technology. Um, and it starts, the article starts with, it was the first time he actually asked somebody before he actually hacked something. And he just basically was saying, there's a better way to do this. And so he spoke with the company and kind of got in as a kind of part-time, he was their part-time employee. Um, and he would go there after school and work on these projects. And eventually they were like, we need this kid to be yeah. part of our staff. Cause he is, he's at the ground level, but he understands like all of the things that we don't understand at mm -hmm. this kind of corporate level of, of developing these tools. So it's super awesome story of him being able to go through the process and then him being in encouraged and then actually rewarded in the end with a job at this company um, yeah. for having hacked in and and learn how the intricacies of this uh, of this system works and make in, improvements on it which man I, I love stories like this when um, we can see that the, there's a huge benefit in involving our students in this in this process and then getting their ideas and then rewarding them obviously for doing these things and then giving them careers in these fields that's the way to do it man this is such a the opposite story of that terrible story from before absolutely that uh it was great to see that you know someone did it right at least this time yes because this is exactly what we want to encourage kids to do to learn from um their experiences and 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 stuff like that uh, and and i guess speaking of experiences and, and learning from them um, not only are, are we about to play you a, an amazing interview with Jordan Shapiro in a few minutes, but this other article that we just came across about, you know, and I relate to this so, so well, and I, yeah. I won't spoil it because I talk about it in the interview with Jordan, but this idea that turning your, well, the article's headline from video game to day job, how SimCity inspired a generation of city planners. And I, I mean, SimCity was formative for me. Yes, as a as a as a person as a as a teacher as a games based learning teacher it was 
super formative for me. It, just like um, just like I talk about civilization, and I bring up World of Warcraft as well. I learned so much from this game, and and the, you know the way of thinking uh, about it. But this person not only um, you know found SimCity formative, but then converted it to a real career as basically a a city uh, a city planner, uh, and and so it, it became truly formative for for these folks. Yeah, no, it, it's such an awesome thing to be inspired. Uh, buy a game and then say like this person actually her quote is i had no idea people actually did this in real life you know basically sure. city planning became super passionate about it and basically uh used this this game in her childhood in her teen years and then said oh my goodness i can actually do this in real life and what does that actually involve and be super interested in it so passionate about it that you then uh, form it into a uh, a successful career um and I, yeah. I if anyone has never played games like SimCity or city skylines i think we mentioned it in a previous episode yep. such awesome games because they simulate basically your decisions have impacts on the, your citizens and then you have to continue to try to solve problems and it's those same types of problems that you would find in a real city for example uh where are you going to put your sewage plant you know where <laughs> what kind of energy are you going to mm -hmm. use you could yeah. you could go for the cheap energy but yet it's going to pollute the citizens and your citizens are going to get sick you know so all yeah. of these decisions are intricate in how you decide to play it and you can run these different types of simulations as they did and then learn from them and then be able to come back to the game and make better decisions. Just super awesome. We we are we love these kind of games and we love that there's a situation here where they published a whole entire article in the Los Angeles Times about the how it changed someone's career. It's preaching to the choir to tell us and probably to tell a lot of people that listen to our podcast that video games can help with learning and can be formative in what you learn and how you learn it and how you transfer those skills to your to your life and your daily activities and your future career. Um, but it's great to see. Listen, all the more articles about this stuff, the better. Um, this is how we we really get the word out is when it it. it it becomes mainstream and something that everyone is seeing and realizing. And so, you know, a great article, we'll link it in the show notes. It's, it's fun to read an article like this because it, it definitely affirms what, you know, we've tended to, what we to talk believe. about. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, when we come back, we are not going to be doing a, a part two because we have a, a very special extended interview with, Jordan Shapiro. We talk about all of the things we just kind of talked about and discuss the topics related to his new book, uh, The New Childhood, uh, which is out now. So stay tuned. It's uh, a great interview. And, uh, and yeah, when we come back, Jordan Shapiro. Quests. One of Classcraft's most popular features with over 100,000 lessons created by teachers and 3 million learning objectives completed by students so far is now part of Classcraft's free offerings. In 2019, your students won't just be learning multiplication, chemistry, or any other content. They'll be saving the kingdom. Transform your lessons into adventures with Quest today. Visit classcraft.com for more information. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Uh, we're beyond thrilled to be joined uh, today by Jordan Shapiro. Jordan is a professor, an author, a speaker, 
probably most of the folks listening uh, to the pod know him know him fairly well, or at least know his work. Uh, his new book, uh, The New Childhood, is available now, and he's he's here to talk to us about it today. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. As we were just talking off air that both of us are fathers of boys who love to play video games, and this book really hits home with us. And in the book, you describe some frustrations that Mike and I actually worry about, as well as any parents can relate to, specifically when uh, children seem detached from real life when they're playing their video games. It just happened this morning again to me. Um, And you state that age-appropriate obsessiveness is not unique to the digital world, that our kids are focused, not isolated. And in fact, most of the time when they're staring at the screens, they're connected to a community. So what's your advice to us as parents and educators about our worries when our kids seem obsessed with these video games? Yeah, I mean, this is a question I get all the time. And there's sort of, uh, there's there's multiple components to it. Um, we'll see how many I remember as I try to answer the, the question. <laughs> um, uh, the, the first thing is, 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 is you, you did that quote about age appropriate obsessiveness. And, and I really put that in because you know, so many people come to me and they go, well, these video games are addictive because I'll ask my kid to come to the dinner table and he just ignores me. And and I'm always (laughs) like, yeah, but that's just kids. Right. And a story I've been telling a lot lately. uh, um, I I wish I had put it in the book, but it hadn't happened yet is my youngest one who's now 11. My, my son is 11 and he, uh, he loves Lego. I mean, he he's he's a crazy master builder Lego kind of guy, mm. and he saves up his allowance and his gifts from his grandparents and his aunts and uncles. Whenever there's like a birthday or something, he saves all this money up and he buys the giant sets that I would never buy him because I'm like that's too expensive. But he he buys them <laughs> himself. And what can you say when a kid's like done saving? You're like, I have to encourage that, even Absolutely. if I still think it's a waste yeah. of his money. I don't want to tell him. Right? <laughs> but, but and I don't think it's a waste. He's having a great time anyway he builds these enormous sets and invariably right before it's time to leave for school once he's dressed and ready to go he decides oh it's a great time to go put three blo- three more bricks on and when i say no it's time to go we have a screaming match right he's just as upset about the lego as it is i was just as upset about uh, uh, about I used to play the piano as a kid and my my mother couldn't get me to stop practicing because I wanted to practice all the time. This is totally normal for kids. And and and, yeah. uh, and what we do as parents is we nag them and we nag them and we nag them and we hope that by the time they're adults, they're better at organizing their, their, their priorities. Sometimes yes. they will, as we all know, sometimes they will be, sometimes they won't, just like <laughs> we're sometimes Perfect. good at it and sometimes we're right. bad at it. Um, but, but we want them to have that voice in their head that tells them how to think about that. And so the nag becomes an important, a really important factor. And, and I find that parents are sort of worried when they have to nag, but I sort of think if you didn't have to nag, then they wouldn't need parents, right? So so that's sort of uh, point one. And then the second thing you brought up was this notion of they're, they're, they're focused, um, but not isolated. And I think there's a couple points there, which, which is the, the other side of this, besides the sort of parent frustration that I have to nag my kids, is uh, they think they're alone. They think they've escaped. They think they've disappeared into another world. And I think what I really want to emphasize so much and so much of the new childhood tries to emphasize is they didn't escape into a new world. They are using the tools that are the tools of this world through which you yeah, build yeah. communities and communications. Um, and, and they're just focused on that. Um, I'll just say one more point. Uh, 
uh, about this, which is uh, um, a lot of people tend to think, especially with with, with Fortnite, uh, uh, they think of it as like my kids addicted and, and stuck in Fortnite. But what I see with my kids is they come home and all of their friend group from school logs on at the same time, and they're just doing what I did as a kid, which is I would lie on the couch with the with the with the phone to my ear and the cord tangled around my finger, right? Because exactly. cord, <laughs> and it would be hours, and my mom would have to be, "You've been on the phone for an hour. You're not saying anything important. You know, you need to stop." That's all they're doing is they're trying to maintain their school community uh, and they have a party line. And, and and I kind of watch my kids sometimes and I'm like, you kind of don't care about what's happening in the game. It's sort of the background. It's the it's the socialization that's exciting. And, and I, I find that fascinating because parents are so afraid of these things being isolating when the kids are excited about it because it's socializing. The irony. Um, <laughs> it, well, and that actually comes right into to this this next question that, I mean, I love that you don't pull your punches in in this book uh, and you fight against quite a few positions that are kind of you hear them all the time probably my most favorite one that you speak about is the issue of screen time and in the end you remind readers that the screen time is virtually the same now as it was in the 90s uh, and that it's the screen that's different not necessarily the amount of time that people are spending on it and i feel like um, screen time, uh, the screen time objection is a bit of a red herring for a number of other fears, I- including the simple fear of change. And that's kind of what you're getting at now, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, first, I want to clarify the clarify the the, the numbers here because uh, because I don't want anyone to think that I misrepresented any any numbers. Which is, uh, there's certainly if we do like full device time, uh, it's pro- it's probably more than it was in the '90s. But the reason in the part of the book that you're talking about where I say it's the same is that if you look at the time amount of time kids are spending watching videos, so watching sure. videos yeah. on YouTube, watching Netflix, watching television, watching you know doing any what what screen time really is what we mean when we say screen time because this is a word that comes from the television era right that's that's sort of the point uh, well, first, let me say that those numbers are the same, but total time using devices is, is a little is a different metric altogether. And I'm making that distinction because when we talk about screen time, we're so caught in this television mindset. And screen time made sense as something to be worried about uh, during the television days. I mean, I don't know if it made sense to be worried about, but the, as a term, as a framing, it made sense because the television is absolutely a, a, a content consumption device, right? You sit there passively receiving the content. Yeah, yeah. So it made sense to go, how much time are you spending with that, with that screen? Um, um, but then there's all the other things that you can do with today's screens. And I don't think they should be considered in the same category as screen time, right? So it gets back to my previous, to, to the previous question, which is if it's socialization time, is that the same as screen time, right? Um, if Or one of the points I, I make a lot, which is if your kid were to spend eight hours a day composing um, uh, electronic music on their on their PC, would you, be, would you find that to be a bad thing? Would you be like, right. hey, we need to quell their passionate creativity because they're spending too much time with their eyes on the screen no but probably if your kid spends eight hours a day watching like toy unpacking videos whatever they call it it's like where they open the toys on youtube i'm all for limiting that kind of screen (laughs) like there's not like this is pure advertising this is not Mm -hmm. of anything good i think we really need to ask not what the screen time is um because what we'll see is screen time has been the same for generations if you think of it as that passive consumption but more what are all the different things they're doing on those screens and what are the benefits what are the negatives what do we want them to be doing 
Well, and it's about balance, right? I mean, Glenn and I have talked about this all the time, the the difference between good screen time and bad screen time and the good use of video games, which I mean, I mean, we're the choir in this, so we all kind of agree on this, (laughs) but like there's good use of video games and there's bad use of video games. And I mean, there's a difference. And so it is. There's also good and bad. There's also good and bad video games. I mean, one of the uh-huh. one of the like gifts of of my profession is that people are always sending me games to test. So my kids are yeah. spoiled. They have every yeah. game, and there's some <laughs> games they turn. I mean, I joke about this all the time. People think they're obsessed with video games. No, they'll turn them on all the time and go, "This game stinks. I'm going outside. Yes, right? Outside right, exactly. is more fun. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. So in the book, Jordan, you discuss the concept of sandboxes quite a bit, yeah. uh, both physical and digital ones. You give a history of the physical ones and kind of the uh, kind of a backstory, which I really enjoyed uh, just learning about that stuff because I didn't really know those those concepts as far as how how that came to be and how revolutionary they actually were, the physical ones. But we also have digital ones like the ones you might find in Minecraft and like Fortnite we were just talking about and how it's so important. It's such an important part of the development of our youth. Can you talk to our audience more about that? Yeah. Um... Well, I'll say I'll say a few things. One, the, the the part of the book that you're talking about is the part where where I give the history of the sandbox. And there's sort of what I don't say in the book, which I I'll say now is I found out about this. This kind of happened by accident. Okay, I I was starting to study. It started out I was studying how video games uh, work. I was discovering that video games and and and, and great video games and great teachers have many things in common. Um, and I and then I started to get into play, playful learning, and I wanted to understand mm-hmm. the different ways that 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 play that that play worked right so what do we know about play for example we know that 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 through play kids develop things like executive function and self regulation skills and all these social emotional skills and and that's you know just to make that clear I, the simplest way i can think of to explain that to people is kids want to have fun they want to have fun all the time and they'll do anything they can to maintain fun and in order to learn how to maintain fun you have to learn how to work with other people you have to learn how to do conflict resolution right because if you're on the playground as a as a, as a 6 year old trying to play make believe and there there's all these tensions there's all these other things happening and you have to balance all of those simultaneously all the different variables simultaneously in order to preserve the game to preserve the fun that's all they're trying to do that's something that gets developed really well in a in in a, in a sandbox uh, um, you know yeah if you just think about this yourself as a kid maybe you think about it on the beach is easier than the sandbox i don't know but you have to learn you don't step on other people's castles you don't grab their shovels you have to share you have to sometimes you have to work together you have to collaborate to build things lots of important skills well i discovered all this because i found a little book written by g stanley hall who was the the sort of preeminent american psychologist at the beginning of the 20th century um and and he was writing a book because sandboxes were brand new um and parents we're really worried that these sandboxes were bad because back to the original question, the first question you guys asked, which is, which is parents were panicked that their kids wouldn't come in from playing in the sand when it was time for dinner. Parents were panicked that their kids were wasting so much time in these sandboxes. Uh, and I read this and I went, oh my God, parents were just as worried about sandboxes as we are, as today's parents are about video games. Um, and, and what it, But what it hit home for me is it taught me that the way we play, the way the way that kids play is always situated 
in um, an economic context, a technological context, a cultural context, a social context, right? It's, it's never just neutral. There's no such thing. Even sandboxes is not just a neutral play that has always existed and always been considered good since the beginning of time, right? There was a point right at the beginning of the industrial era, right at the beginning of the 20th century, where suddenly the sandboxes became important because they taught the kind of individuality, the kind of entrepreneurship, the kind of the the kind of innovative mindset. All these things we talk about, like when we talk about character skills, right? All those things, uh, you know, perseverance. It taught all the all these skills really well while kids were just playing. And so eventually, people embraced the sandbox. And so what I'm really arguing, and the reason I bring it in, is that when you understand that play is never neutral, that it's always situated with some kind of technology technology and economic paradigm and social paradigm and cultural paradigm well that means we need to adjust for a changing social paradigm and that and that's where i where i come to minecraft or or fortnite or any of these sandbox games i mean it's it's sort of a coincidence that they're called sandbox games i think any games that are social are building those skills mediated through a specific tool set right our kids are going to have to grow up I had to grow up to, to well, I, I grew up with technology like you guys did. But the generation before, there was a lot of handiwork. There were a lot of kinds of collaboration that was face-to-face like you have in a sandbox. Nowadays, a lot of our collaboration is digital. I mean, I, I, I'm waiting for someone to give us a real clear like statistics of how much of the daily, uh, uh, how much of our social-emotional skills we use as adults are through digital devices. I suspect we're up to the majority of it. The majority of the interactions we have to have, social, professional, are, are digital at this point. And so how do you teach kids to have the skills to be able to do that the same way we had to teach them the skills to be able to collaborate in a work uh, uh, around a conference table? And that's why I love the idea of, of sandbox games, because they give kids this opportunity to practice conflict resolution, collaboration, creativity in, in groups mediated through a specific tool set. That that was an amazing response, and it actually answered the following question, which is oh, okay, because, because you brought up something that I had actually tweeted uh, that got quite a few responses from educators, because that's the majority of, I would say, of our audience is educators, uh, where I tweeted that great video games share a lot in common with great teachers. And I think yeah. that, you know, teachers hear us talk about video games all the time, Mike and I. Uh, We usually lead with something about something we're doing or playing with our kids and how impactful it is in our lives, not just our lives, but our kids' lives too. But I love this part that you say that they share a lot in common with great teachers that both are rigorous, responsive, reflective, and real. Talk more about that because I want our educators to be able to hear that so that they don't fear these video games that these kids are playing, that they understand that they are also great teachers, these games are. Oh well, well, well. This gets to what we were saying a, a little bit earlier, which is, which is there's both good games and and and, and bad games. Um, and um, you so you know, first thing I would say is that what the difference between a good game and a bad game is almost the same as the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher. I mean, that's a little bit of a broad generalization because I'm sure there's lots of small uh, small factors that could be also that I'm not even considering, but let's just take the premise for, for now. Uh, they, 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 again, they're, as you used them, let's see if I can rem- I can always forget those four R's in order. Rigorous, ref- did I do re- responsive, responsive, reflective, and real. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I, I mean, I should go through them, I guess. I'll, I'll go I'll go through them all for a second. You know, the rigorous is 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 games just like teachers need to have just the right level of challenge. They can't be too easy. They can't be too hard. Right. A game that's to imagine Mario Brothers. You couldn't fall off the platform and there were no Koopa Troopas. Right. All you do is run <laughs> to the flag. It'd be the worst game ever. You'd be bored. Mm. Right. Also imagine, as we know, there are some games, right, that, that are just so hard to beat that you stop. Cuphead is sort of a great example that, like, like yes. it's really, really hard. Cuphead. Really hard. If it, yes. Yeah, if it weren't for the great animation and the great music, I don't think, I think most people would have left um, sure. uh, uh, because it's because it's so hard to, so hard to play. Um, yeah. so, so it has to meet that place in the middle where you can feel success and also feel challenged that's that that come what i quote in the book is it comes from lev vygotsky the 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 russian educationalist slash psychologist who talked about it now he was he was a, a a socialist in the soviet union so when he was talking about it it was also about uh, about community. It was also about the, the idea, not just what do I need to do to, you know, not just getting to the zone of proximal development that's between hard and easy, but also where is the place where what I can do on my own versus what I need to ask a teacher or a friend or another person for help from. So, and that that's where you want to keep everything. I think that still fits with video games pretty well. Uh, one, in today's multiplayer games, there's lots of things you need to ask for other players for. But even if you go back to our games as kids, again, Super Mario Brothers, right? You act, There's always like a power up that you need right at the right moment, right? You can't use mm-hmm. the skills you had right before you go through the door. It gets much harder. So you start, sort of need to always be in this place of having to get external help for it, so that's the that's the rigorous. The next one is uh, is responsive, which is about feedback, right? Great teachers and for great games give you constant feedback. If you want to think about this in terms of video games, you would just say, uh, you know, imagine if you didn't know why Pac-Man died. Like that'd be the most frustrating game. Like you're just playing and he dies, <laughs> right? You don't know why. What what do you do next? You you'd you'd quit that too. You'd find it frustrating. You'd be bored, um, and and you'd and and you'd stop. Um, and again, all great teachers know we talk. We call it formative assessment in yes. the educational world, right? We all know that the the that actually way more important than the summative assessment is the constant formative assessment, and it doesn't even have. I hate the term formative assessment because it sounds like formal, yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> right? And it's it's often casual. It's often just about the fact that I can look around the room, ask a question, say what who remembers last what we were talking about last class, and I can see how many people are focused, and I either give them the positive or the negative negative feedback like you know and, and i can often do that with my eyes or my body language um or sometimes we do it in more formal ways often we do it in more formal ways but you have to do both um uh, and video games do that teachers do that same thing that makes them engaging um the next one is uh, reflective, reflective which yeah, which is about the metacognition idea in education, right? In education, we call that metacognition, the the ability to think about your own thinking. And by the way, that's tied up in the all the growth mindset stuff too, right? Yes, so, yeah. So this uh, this idea that if I recognize it's not me that failed the test, but my performance on the test that wasn't that wasn't adequate, right? Being able to separate uh, my 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 identity or myself from my performance, right? That's the sort of growth mindset way of framing it. Metacognition is just recognizing that I'm an I learning, right? It's not mm-hmm. just it's not who I am completely. And in video games, like I've always said, this is just built right in, right? Because you you there's the I that holds the controller, and there's the I that's in the game. And although while we're playing the game, we go, oh, no, I died. Right. We we also know that I didn't die. I can start the game over and I can try again. And, and I have that sort of growth mindset of failure. And then the last one is real. And, I you know, video games aren't real, but 
they are experiential and I they are hands-on <laughs> right and they are they do feel real while you're playing them yes, and they, they do. do have and they do have real consequences in the sense that that there's a system that's clear right it's not like like they're not real life they're not there's i don't mean stakes right it's not like real stakes right like you're not going to die there's no chance of getting hurt but it, but there are immediate consequences to your actions and to that sense is in that way it, it feels real where when you're reading a textbook there's no consequences to whether or not you understand chemistry or not right but if you build it into into a, a, a hands-on activity as any chemistry teacher knows then you immediately see the real consequences of those ideas Ideas. And so games do that phenomenally well. They put all those things together. Should people, well, people should certainly still be afraid of some games because I'm not saying games are like broccoli because they happen to use all the, like they don't have vitamins in them, right? I'm saying that they're, <laughs> they're, they're engaging because they do all the, the all of those things. Um, and, and, and that's why they, that's why kids can learn them uh, so well, right? If you look at, I mean, I think all adults should always need to stop and re realize, especially those who don't play video games. When you yes. see a kid playing a video game, you, one of the reasons you don't play as an adult is because it's so complicated and it scares you, right? It's so complex. <laughs> Kids can learn that in two minutes. In two yeah. minutes, they turn it on, and you could too as an adult because ga good games give, teach you the language. They teach you the system. They teach you the physics. They teach you the rules very quickly um, and, and very effectively. And those people who have done built the really great video games for learning have used all of that in learning so you know i'm a big fan i talk about it all the time dragon box any of the dragon box games uh which are which are apps for teaching the, the first one was apps for teaching algebra and basically it just turned all the numbers and variables into into cute pictures and then introduced new powers right did you know you can mm, you can you cool. can make something negative that's a new power up you just got you can make something negative and they, and they do it right <laughs> and, and and i watched my kids that when we first did it my youngest was four i watched him solve complex algebraic equations it took him about it took him like three hours but by the time he was done he could like with a slider self come he didn't know what it was and he'll yeah. probably forget it by the time he gets to algebra class but i watched how he could do it on this on the screen um at at, at that point um so so it's not necessarily that what that because something teaches it's therefore good i don't want to make that suggestion because you asked uh can you say it to make so the parent the people who are afraid are are not afraid well, you should certainly be afraid we could teach you can teach lots of bad things right you could you know good, there's there's good teachers who who are who are who are radicalizing people all the time i'm guessing they're fantastic teachers the people who <laughs> radicalize terrorists like imagine what a great teacher you have to be to convince people to do something deadly exactly right? No. <laughs> right right so certainly worry about it but but the idea mm -hmm. to imagine that games are frivolous, the idea to imagine that games are, are, are stupid, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, they're, they're, they're complex, they're sophisticated, and they're full of, of, of teaching. And we should deep, be deeply concerned about whether they're teaching good things or bad things. That's sort of part of the core concern of the book is how do we make sure that these, this digital play, which is so powerful, gets used for good. Awesome. So I'm thinking I'm thinking about a bunch of I mean my head is just going crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah, right now ahead. which which is so much fun um and I, and I've been thinking while you were talking about the games that influenced me um and and I come back to 3 and we're going to actually talk about one uh we talked about one on the podcast uh today earlier I think about World of Warcraft I think about Civilization and I think about Sim City and mm -hmm. when I think about those three games specifically, these are exactly the types of games I think we're talking about. 
um, they have all of those elements. Uh, and I, I actually wrote a, an, an autoethnography when I was doing my, uh, my postgraduate uh, on, on the experience of being a guild leader. Mm-hmm. And and how being a guild leader in World of Warcraft gave me transferable skills that I'm not sure I could have received elsewhere, at least not in the same way, and certainly not as quickly. Uh, which I I find, um, you know, it was a great experience. Uh, and while now I have children, and it's you know, it's a virtually impossible for me to be a, a raid leader in a in a World of Warcraft guild now. <laughs> maybe we can maybe we can talk just quickly about the. I mean, we're talking about transferable skills. The idea is that that these games are are giving us skills and abilities and habits that that um this is probably the best way to learn some of these things now isn't it <laughs> well i i don't know if it's the best but i know it's effective um and, yeah and, yeah and that question of transferable is a big is is a big issue i think um you know and there's people have started to study whether or not the skills are really transferable that's the kind of study that i'm i'm sort of mm. uh i i sort of don't buy into um and the, the um m- more because uh because i think it you know it's going to certainly take some level of mentorship i don't know whether you had any that made it transferable you may have just done it yourself somehow but but what what what, what really scares me about the way a lot of people approach digital play is they think of it as something separate that kids do. And if the kids start to get the yeah. message that this is something separate and other, then none of that is going to be transferable, right? Then none That's of those yes. leadership skills. My my son, my older son loves civilization, plays it all the time. He loves all these kinds of strategy games. But I think because I'm so like gung-ho, let me understand what you're doing. Let me talk to you about it. He, when he's in history class, ends up thinking about how they connect, right? He starts to use the sort of language of the game to 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 imagine how do you think about what happened in world history, which is a great thing to do because civilization is full of these sort of questions of resources and geopolitics, and is a great way to think about this macro picture of historic of historic trends. But you need that mentorship to be able to transfer it. If his whole life, I think, if his whole life I had been like. Uh, uh, go in your room and play your stupid game or why don't you ever come out from playing your stupid game? I don't think he would think of it as something that he should try to connect to what he's doing in school. Um, um, And so we we need to encourage those kinds of connections in order to take those positive lessons and make sure they end up uh, um, um, in in the world Um, in the the way they think about their digital lives and the way they think about their non-digital lives. Uh, And that involves parents really getting rid of this a strange binary I mean, you know this is back to the screen time question this strange binary we have between digital life and non-digital life when it's not realistic anymore right it's impossible you know I, I, I don't know if it's impossible but I would guess if we asked like 50 people to uh, to try to live their lives for a week without any digital connections, right? How would they maintain their difficult. social relationships, their professional relationships, or even do their work? I think it would yeah. be almost impossible for most people. Um, and so what we want to do is teach our kids how to integrate this into their lives in healthy, positive ways. And that's not happening with this huge separation. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I do want to say is sort of off topic, but only slightly, but we got to it, which is so many people imagine because they, they, they've heard me talk that I'm this like super pro screen time, everything. It's great. Let your kids play more video games uh, guy. I'm actually 
just as concerned about all the things that the anti-screen time people are. Um, um, I just think the attitude of, hey, we need to have the on-off switch mentality or what I call the binge and purge digital detox mentality. Sure, like, sure. like, I think we, that's the wrong way to solve our concern, which is, are these kids going to have no social skills? Yeah, they're going to have no social skills if you don't teach them how to transfer the digital social skills into into meaningful ethical life. Um, if if grownups don't get involved in that, then then you've got a you got a Lord of the Flies situation going on, and that's and that's and and that is what we have in some ways. You yes. know, I mean. I mean, some of what happens on Twitch and YouTube, I find to be appalling, especially because the kids are just watching it as if these are idols, right? And the parents yeah, don't know yeah. it well enough to even counteract it. Like, I don't mind that my kids watch someone that I disagree with. They'll find that on TV all the time, too. But at least I understand what's going on on TV, so I can say to them, hey, you really believe that guy? Why would you believe that guy? He's he's a, he's an idiot. He's a bad person. He's immoral, yes. right? I can have that discussion with them. Um Parents are so not involved with their digital lives, so they're not able mm-hmm. to, 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 to frame that. Um, and it gets worse when you're like, I think it gets worse when you're like, okay, you're allowed two hours of screen time a day. I don't want to know what's going on there. So now you have this like temptation <laughs> world of like sin that they're allowed, for, like they're allowed in sin world for two hours two a hours. day. <laughs> right? Well, but how could that it. end up good? How could that end up good if you're allowed? Like, I don't want to tell my kid, you're not allowed to do something I think is evil for two hours a day. You're never allowed to do things I think are evil. <laughs> funny um at at the end of each section of your book you have takeaways uh the big points uh in in the chapter and in your section on the new learning objectives i found your takeaways a super powerful distillation of how school needs to change it was it was like you were speaking right to the way that i want to teach and how i want to embody education myself um and, and and I swear to God, like, I think we take those three takeaways, put them on a poster and put that poster in every wall of every school. And it, and I mean, if if folks can just work towards those, um, they would have done something huge. And, and, it, and I'll tell you, it made me think that this is a team effort um, that buy in for all of these big changes that need to happen um, require participation at a lot of different levels. Uh, we all have to be invested in this change from teachers to parents, to administrators, to principals, to uh, superintendents. Everyone has to realize that the world is changing right in front of us. And our kids are different than, than we were and our parents were and their parents and we all have to be invested in moving with this change and working together to navigate it properly, right? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the reasons that in in the new childhood, I write that the, there's a whole section on school for those who haven't haven't even looked at it yet. The the, the book's divided into four sections, and one's all about school mm-hmm. and education. And I and I tried really hard to make that section on school and education uh, really. Uh, how do I say, I, I was going to say general, but I don't want it to sound like it, like, like it, it's not specific either. Right. But I didn't want, what I didn't want it to be is, you know, here's how you teach math. Here's how you teach English. Here's right. I, what I wanted to do was talk about the ways 
of thinking that had yes. to change both for the students and for the teachers so that people so that teachers could then and students and parents right, but anyone who's reading it could be sort of creative about how do I how do I apply that shift in the way we think about the world to what I already know so well right because almost everything that teachers teach almost I'm going to say almost but it's 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 all it's probably even more than almost right uh, it's it's 99.9 percent of what teachers teach isn't is completely applicable forever okay um, right like like math is not going anywhere literature is not going anywhere you know grammar is not going anywhere these will all be important but the way that we use these things and the way that they that they that they shape the way that our lives the way we talk about the way we use that these language i mean they're all languages in some ways right math is a language i use to describe the world in terms of interval right so that you and i can talk about how to measure things right um, i don't need math if i live alone in a tree right like it's of no use <laughs> to me living it's only a view right i might understand the world mathematically but i don't need algebraic language i only need that if i need to communicate that math knowledge to somebody else uh, or, or want to uh, uh, collaborate with someone else uh, so but that the ways that we end up doing that collaboration, the ways we end up articulating our vision, ourself, our things we care about, the world we want to create is always based in some sort of tools. Uh, um, and so what I really wanted to do was go, how does a math teacher think about different ways of presenting information, different ways of doing pedagogy, different ways uh, of bringing these things into their lives? I mean, I, I, I didn't I, I just looked at when you just mentioned this, I decided I, you know, I picked up the book and looked at, at the takeaways because I couldn't remember what they were from. From that chapter, but I, 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 you know, reading them, I think they that I'm going to read them to you uh, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Can I do don't that? Mind. Do it. Because <laughs> I want to talk about them, I think, because I think you're totally right. I hadn't realized how how much of the ones in this chapter went together, but now that I do it, I go, yeah, they really do get to it. And the the first one is teach kids to see themselves as nodes of connection, points through which knowledge is transmitted across time and space. And, and I think what I'm trying to get to with that point is you know we used to think of um, we used to think of students e as one of two things right either the either the repositories of information so the teacher just hands them knowledge that they store in their brain and then they have to prove on a test that they have well memorized well that's certainly not useful anymore right um, we now we all have a device of a memory device in our pockets our smartphone allows us to grab anything at any time so so the ability to reposit and recall information is not what matters what matters instead is how do you use that information, right? How can you how can you understand that information well enough to know what to search for and how Absolutely. to use what you searched for? Um, so that's still critical, right? You still need to teach all these things because otherwise, how do you know what to do? I, my my son the other day was working on a project. Uh, I don't remember what it was. It was some mountain range he was studying. He couldn't figure out. You know, I was like, how can that be hard? All you have to do is Google. But he didn't even know how to start. He was like, I can only come up with three sentences and it has to be six paragraphs. And I just sit with him and go, well, did you look at the geology of the mountain range? Have you looked at the, his the history of the mountain range? When was it a border? When wasn't it a border? Right. What are the what's the biome like? Right. There are all these things that he hadn't even considered that you have to think about. Uh, and once I gave him a list of those, he was you know, there was more information than he knew what to do with. That's what he needs to learn. Like, he can find it all. It's all there. More information information than I could have found at the library anywhere, right? Like you yes. could go to the Harvard 
Harvard library. It didn't have as much information as Google has right, <laughs> has right, has right, right now. <laughs> it's, that's all accessible to us. But the question is, how do you become a node, right? Mm-hmm. How do you become a node that can take that information, make it useful and connect it with someone else, right? How do you do that? That's what we need to teach our kids. The second point here is schools need more interdisciplinary activities that provide students with opportunities to extract information from mixed data sets, turn it into knowledge that becomes and turn it into knowledge that becomes relevant in unexpected contexts. And I think that gets to the same point I'm making in the previous point. I mean, they're almost the same. It's this this idea that there's so much data and it's often about how do you connect data from unexpected places. Um, and, and I actually, I, I, this is one that's really important to me and it's what I do throughout the book, I think, is go, how do I take some history? How do I take some ancient philosophy? How do I take some modern neuroscience? How do I take economics and bring all of them together so they become meaningful in their connection? They become meaningful in a way that 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 that's really that, that that can shape the way you think about the world and articulate things we want our kids to be able to do that but that's the most important skill that's what they're going to need to do when you're building anything you know even if you're inventing something like uber that means changing the way you think about what transportation is changing the Absolutely. way you think about what business is and that means you need to be able to draw different concepts from different places bring them together and and and, and turn them into something new that's what our kids need in a, in a world where data and information is so available. And the last one is just that our current education teaches kids to see themselves as rigid vessels, but the world demands that they be porous membranes. Um, and that's, you know, th- this, that has an ethical component that has an intellectual yeah. component. I think that may even have a spiritual component yes. to, to, to that point, depending on how you want to take it. But the, the, the bottom line is we so much of what we do in the education system is about dividing things up right now. We divide things into grades. We divide them into subjects. We divide them into into rankings of who's the best student, who's the worst student. We divide them into teachers and you know experts and non-experts. We divide them into administrators and teachers. We There's report card. Everything's divided into rigid categories in, in education. Mm-hmm. And that made sense for the industrial era. You know, I'm not even saying that's bad. A lot of people love to say that's bad. That was a brilliant thing we did in the industrial era that allowed us to break a complex, you know, if you think about it in terms of factories, it allowed us to break a complex manufacturing process into lots of tiny little categories that could then be more efficient. It has allowed us to build medical science, which has helped so much of the world, right? Because we're able to break things down into into cells. I mean, I don't know enough about biology to come up with a lot of examples, but just the fact that we can understand the difference between a bacteria and a virus and all these categories has allowed us to build so much. Our phones exist because of our ability to understand quarks and atoms and you know electrons and protons divide the world into these pieces, which are all just ways, ways of thinking. But that is no longer the world that we live in. We live in a world where everything uh, is always connected, always on, always, all, always moving, and and your ability to draw connect, to draw those connections and your is much better. Your ability to allow is much more important, right? Your ability to allow those things to move through you. So that's what I'm saying. They they we don't want them to see themselves as singular objects, you know, rigid vessels. We want them to start to see themselves. As, uh, as as porous membranes, things through which knowledge can can move through and 
and maybe they change, maybe it doesn't. The information moves through, the ideas move through. People who people who connect. Um, you cannot, you, you can't imagine yourself as something separate from others. You know that that's how we end up with 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 angry xenophobia. That's how we end up with nationalism. Absolutely. Is when you just think about how you're separate from things, and and those are important categories. But we need to understand, you know, those identity categories, not as things that separate us, but as things that allow us to connect. Right. Yes. I, I might be a, a I might be a man. I might be Caucasian. I might be Jewish. I might be American. Uh, you know, if I choose to identify that. But that should be the opportunity with through which I'm able to say, hey, now we can talk to each other because I know who I am rather than because I am that I'm away. I need to move away from you. <laughs> right. For sure. Absolutely. So the new childhood is uh, available everywhere you can buy books. Uh, Everyone should go pick it up now. Uh, uh, There'll be a link to purchase it in our show notes. Jordan, this has been uh, amazing. Thanks for joining us. Um, My pleasure. Hopefully, hopefully everyone reads this book because I, I think it's it's absolutely critical. If you're a parent, this is the book to read 100%. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. It's my pleasure. It's been great to be here and I love what you guys do. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we'd love if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost and this helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor Schoology for supporting us. Check out Schoology.com to learn how they can help you advance what's possible. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and we'll see you soon.